Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Saturday, March 12th, 2023. Yeah, it is. It's the 12th tonight or the Oscars. So we know that there's something almost as important as this podcast going on tonight. But I joke, we're not that big yet. Anyhow... (laughs) Before my mouth runs away with me, I'm Mark Daly, welcoming you to the, the podcast today, welcoming my friend, my neighbor, my friend of me. I don't have to memorize like you do. Anyways, Mark Hamilton's here as well. Hammy, how are you, buddy? Are you Have you recovered from that monster solo show you did in my absence on 30, Thursday nights? Well, it appears you've escaped from your trunk where I had stashed you away <laughs> for the part of the better part of the last week. So uh, yeah. <laughs> apparently I won't be doing any more solo shows and you haven't pressed charges. So so that's good. But welcome back. And unfortunately, I kind of teed it up to the audience as, hey, I was doing you a solid by letting you have the day off. That wasn't really the case at all. You were at an no. incredibly intense work event for the entire week week so uh yeah so it's not like you had a break at all to be totally honest yeah you know the funny thing was is i i got back home last night just about uh, dinner time and it was like the whole weight of the entire four or five days kind of came off of my shoulders and i was just i was completely gone by about 10 o'clock and if anybody anybody that knows me knows that is completely out of character because i'm a night owl i'm a night person so like 10 30 on a saturday night is like me saying at like two o'clock in the afternoon that's it i'm done for the day because i tend to stay up very very late uh, especially on the uh, on the weekends but good to be back yes i'm not going to press charges because you locked me in the trunk because you know it was a formula one related thing so it's all good <laughs> figuratively speaking but it's it's nice to be back and we're kind of going a little bit off script ish today we're going to talk about some news we've got a whole bunch of emails that we've been meaning to get to for ages and ages and ages uh, first of all just want to give a, a shout out to jt the human the amazing artist that uh, created the uh, the title track the opener to this also probably not quite as equally amazing podcast but we try our best also we've uh, partnered with the race weekend magazine which you guys know and that's the race weekend rac it's R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. You can save uh, 10% on a subscription if you use our promo code ScuderiaPod. Also, we got our grand prize for the fantasy uh, for this um, for this year. And a big shout out to Tis as uh, and uh, to RacingExclusives.com for that wonderful prize of the autographed Max Verstappen uh, helmet, which I don't think... Well, you probably want to give it away because you're not a big fan of Max, but... Um, I don't know. It's probably a good thing that uh, you know you've got it your possession to not be because uh, I'd have a bit of trouble giving that get away, that away. But you know, I'm kind of the same with any autograph merch. But anyways, big shout out to Tease for that standings. Let's just go over the standings after one weekend, after one race. 
So after the opener last week in Bahrain, Max Verstappen leading the Formula One World Championship with 25 points, his teammate at Red Bull, Sergio Perez, in second with 18 points. Fernando Alonso, the Aston Martin driver, currently third in the World Championship with 15 points. Carlos Sainz from Ferrari with 12, rounding out the top five. Lewis Hamilton from Mercedes with 10 points. On the constructor side in the 2023 Formula One World Championships, in the uh, let's see, where do I have my notes? There we go. Red Bull on top, and I hope this is going to stay this way all season long, but it is at least one round in. RBR, 43 points. Aston Martin, 23. Care of Lance Stroll and uh, Alonso's podium last week. And Mercedes, 16. Ferrari's fourth with 12th. And Alfa Romeo, currently fifth in the Constructors with five points. Okay, Hammy, moving along. Just going to throw this one, then I'll let you go over this this nice graphic that uh, you've dug up with, with some of the uh, Formula and team principles and their uh, place of birth. Anyways, out of the last 20 races, Max Verstappen has won 75% of those races, meaning he's won 15 out of 20. Not even the GOAT, Sir Lewis Hamilton, seven-time world championship, has matched or even come close to that streak over the period of 2014 to 2020, when Mercedes absolutely dominated uh, Formula 1. I shouldn't say didn't come close because I don't have all those stats immediately at hand. But I mean, what Max has done over the past 20 races is pretty much unparalleled. And I can't believe that even Lewis, who literally owns every other record in the book, (laughs) is not ahead of Max on this one. Anyways. All right. So the next one, uh, you've got this uh, a graphic that you dug up on uh, on Reddit from Andy Anderson Data. Do you want to lend a, a little bit of color to this one, Hammy? Yeah, neat little chart that I, I discovered on Reddit the other day, and it helps to contextualize the the birthplace of a lot of the Formula One team principles. Of course, we all know Christian Horner from Britain. We hear it in his accent. We we see it in we see it in Drive to Survive. Uh, James Vols, um, of course, now over at uh, the Williams team, also from the UK. Mike Crack is from Luxembourg. Frederick Vasseur is from France. France Tost is from Austria, and so too is fellow countryman Total Wolf. Otmar Snafnauer, of course, we all associate him with being American and from Michigan, and he's got that American accent, originally from Romania. And then there are three gentlemen, two team principals, and one who's kind of a team representative, Gunther Steiner from Italy, Andrea Stella from Italy, and Alessandro Alumni Bravi, I, I'm going to get you to correct me because I brutalized that name, is of course the team representative for Sauber slash Alfa Romeo slash Audi. Of course, Audi now. Uh, but of course, interesting where the dis- distribution of team principles come from. And I think the notable thing here, of course, is that they're almost all entirely European based or European born. So we don't yet see any significant distribution of team principals and really team executives from outside of the European Union. And hopefully as time goes by, we'll see more and more people from the Americas and, and South Asia um, come to uh, come to dominate some of these roles. And of course, hopefully we'll see some gender diversity in the future as well, because not only are all of these gentlemen from Europe, they're also all male, but uh, obviously some things to aspire to and look forward to in the future. Yeah, it's kind of like a really kind of shocking when you see just that, like geos- geographically constrained 
the selection pool is for Formula One team principals. I think that you know you did a really good job because like when you hear Otmar talking, he sounds you know he sounds like you or me. I mean, he sounds very very well. We're not American, but he he has a very very American dialect, very American accent, which you know most people listening to this podcast are going to identify with because he sounds very different than all the other team principals when you hear them, right? But you know he is originally from uh, Romania, but would you just see geographically how you know <laughs> how small that pool is it uh, kind of uh, lends to the, the first thing that kind of pops into my mind again is hmm i guess it really isn't a world championship but it is kind of i mean i'm that's kind of part of a uh, a broader discussion but kind of shows and shout out by the way to yeah. andy anderson for that Absolutely. Chart. I, sh- I should i should give credit where credit is due well, for i that. already gave andy credit so we gave him double credit which is uh, which is good okay double yeah, credit nice. good okay let's jump into the mailbag first up is clayton from toronto Hey guys, it's an honor that you would entertain reading my email. I haven't missed an episode of your podcast since 2021, and already, or and don't worry, I have already left a review on Apple. Well, cheers for that, Clayton. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Um, then he goes on to say, I know you guys don't like to be political, but I would love your honest opinion on the Canadian government's extremely controversial Bill C11. What are your thoughts, and how could it impact what you guys do? Okay, so this is a bit of a, a big one to unpack, uh, or unpack, uh, pardon me. So the first thing that we should clarify, the Bill C-11, or what is going to become known as the Online Streaming Act, has not yet become law. It's uh, It's gone through a number of readings in the House of Commons. It's gone to the Senate. It's gone, the, the, the senators didn't like some things. They've sent it back to the House of Commons to, to work on it a little bit. So this thing ha- actually hasn't been approved. It's not officially a law yet. I know that there's a bunch of contracts controversial things. And I spent a good amount of time coming home when I was traveling yesterday to try and break this thing down. And it's a little bit difficult to read at the moment because the most current version is just this uh, th- this patchwork document of, you know, this is what the original paragraph said, or this is what the original section said, it needs to be updated and replaced with this. So it kind of reads a little bit all over the place. But uh, what, what I found was interesting is section 2.1 which is titled exclusion carrying on broadcasting undertaking and it reads quote a person who uses a social media service to upload programs for transmission over the internet and reception by other users of the service and who is not the provider of the service or the provider's affiliate or the agent or mandatory of either of them does not by the fact of that use carry on a broadcasting undertaking for the purposes of this act. So let, let that one marinate uh, for a moment. And then this is uh, looks like to be what is a proposed, something that uh, that needs to be reworked. So this is in section four, paragraph 31F to H, or at least F is uh, supposed to be replaced by the following. And F says, quote, each Canadian broadcasting undertaking shall employ to make maximum use and in no case less than predominant use of Canadian creative and other human resources in the creation, production and presentation of programming unless the nature of the service provided by the undertaking, such as specialized content or format or the use of languages other than French or English renders that use impractical, impracticable, pardon me, in which case the undertaking shall make the greatest practicable use of those resources. So it's interesting. So what I do in my professional life, I'm involved with a professional regulator uh, and I spend a lot of time looking at things like this and I kind of feel, should this be read, you know, like passed into law, 
that this section 2.1 would apply to us because yes, we're using a social media service, which would be, we use megaphone, which then disperses everything to Spotify and Amazon music and Apple, etc. makes me kind of feel that we're not subject to everything on there. I mean, there, there's certain obviously things that we are, but I kind of felt like that this was like, com- like this is more intended for like commercial streaming services. And then it does go on. There's, you know, if you're Canadian and you've, you know, ever kind of like followed anything like this, you'll hear the the term Canadian content kind of like thrown out there a lot. So this, that's why I thought this section four, or what is it? Yeah, paragraphs three one F to H. You know that first one says that makes the maximum or shall employ make maximum use of Canadian creative and other human resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like we got um, you know things covered off there. And then when I kind of went through the rest of the the document, there was a lot of cut and paste and stuff in French because of course Canada is bilingual. So there's some parts of this uh, that this bill that need to be updated in English and French, of course. So that makes it a little bit uh, tougher to go through as well. Where it got a little bit kind of cloudy for me is when it comes to revenue, because it, it, there, there was some mention in there that you do fall under this law or the statute if you're generating revenue from it. But I wasn't sure if like where that kind of comes in because we earn revenue from our advertising, but it's really peanuts. I mean, Hammy and I, have we, we, it's gotten to the point where we can split up what we earn, but it's not a lot. I mean, this is like kind of like topping up my Starbucks card at the, <laughs> the end of the month. So I mean, it's not like I'm paying my mortgage on it or supporting my family and, and neither is Hammy. So I kind of read that to be more of this, it was commercially produced with the intent of, you know, making like larger amounts of revenue off of it. So, I mean, I, I kind of stopped looking at it there because I'm, I'm kind of in a bit of a, you know, I'm number one, like I say, this bill hasn't been passed. It needs to be amended because it's been sent back to the House of Commons to do work in committee there. So I'm kind of like, I think we're kind of like not subject to it. Should it be passed into law? But maybe we kind of will be, but I feel like we've covered off a lot of things. So I, I don't know, Clayton, it's a great question and I'm not really sure to be quite honest. Yeah, Daly, I think you did a really great job of summarizing the technical side of this bill and just you, you touched on something that I think probably deserves a little bit uh, a little bit more detail, but uh, for probably not the current generation, but for our generation for sure, we grew up in an era where Canadian TV and Canadian radio and Canadian magazines were subject to really strict regulation. And that regulation was all about making sure there was a certain percentage of Canadian content in everything, radio, TV, magazine. So as a result, most American broadcasters were blocked and we would have Canadian variations of those and there would be American content on them but about 30% of all of the content had to be Canadian so if you were talking about our version of MTV much music 30% of all of their music videos had to be Canadian so the government did this because they wanted to protect Canadian identity and Canadian culture and they didn't want us to simply be overwhelmed with American culture but what happened in the mid 90s is that when the internet became widely available, there was no 
Canadian governmental regulation of the internet. So all of a sudden, we had unbridled access to American media, British media, Asian media, and the government wasn't involved at all. And I think the concern here from Canadians is we have an entire generation now that grew up who weren't really subject to Canadian content regulations. Like They're not listening to a local radio station. They're listening to Spotify or Apple Music. And they're probably not watching broadcast TV. They're probably watching a streaming service or they're watching a YouTube. And I think the fear amongst Canadians is that there's going to be a clamp down on on streaming services and social media um, and other forms of distribution of information on the web designed to regulate it and control it. And furthermore, that Canadian content producers like you and me might become subject to this regulation and that we might have to report on the amount of our content that is Canadian-based and who our employees are and all these other kind of pieces. So I think that's where the fear is. So ultimately, if this does become menacing, I'm simply going to move to Dubai anyway. So uh, we won't be subject to that. I'll bring I'll bring you with me, my friend, um, and you can and you can work remotely as much as you possibly can. But but yeah, I think that's it. But yeah, Clayton, great question. It's something that we've both be, both been deeply worried about. Yeah, there there was some language in there that, uh, that I was just kind of scrolling as you were talking there, Mark. I wanted to find it, but it, it, it's it's buried in the the, the beat of this uh, this document and like i say it it's pretty difficult at this point since it is an amended bill that's been gone through several readings and trips to the senate and then back to committee at the house of commons that you know it's it's far from the final document but there was something in there that i can't remember the exact uh, language but it was something that it isn't intended to stifle you know creative voices and content and things like that so i know that there's potentially some you know concerning things in there, but when I started to delve into it, I I didn't feel as concerned as I did, you know, previously. But however, like I say, this is still a bill; it's not law yet, so we'll just have to to wait and see where it goes. So, great question. Thanks very much uh, for Clayton. So, the next one comes from Mia in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Hello, love the show. Can you uh, provide some better clarity on what parts teams have to make versus what parts they get to buy? The idea is that teams uh, can buy parts from their competitors has me very confused. Your show is a fuego. Gracias. Well, thank you very much for the email, Mia. So, Mark, I know that this sort of stuff is right in your wheelhouse. So why don't you kick off this uh, conversation? Yeah, and I'm going to turn around and defer to good friend of the show, Ed Straw. I joke, I joke, but I am. I am going to lead <laughs> into a really great article that Ed Straw published on the race.com back in January 18th of 2022. And I think this is a question that definitely deserves a little bit of clarity because as much as we talk about Formula One being uh, the kind of premier racing series on the planet, it's not a prototype series, meaning that teams are regulated in terms of how they build components, what components components they build, what components they have to buy from a standard supplier, et cetera. So I'm going to I'm gonna lift some quotes here from this article from Ed Straw because I think he does a really good job. Uh, according to Ed Straw, there are several different types of parts categories for Formula One's car, and these are listed team components, so LTC parts, transferable components, TRC parts, standard supply components, SSC, and open source components, 
OSC. Now, these these categories were introduced for 2022. So if you do do any internet Google searching, make sure you're looking at the regulations as they were drawn up for the 2022 onward period because parts categories were very different prior to that period. So to take a look at the listed team components, LTC, Ed Straw writes, this category existed last year as the new name for what were previously called listed parts. These are quote unquote components whose design manufacture an intellectual property is owned and or controlled by a single competitor or its agents on an exclusive basis. And he writes, this means that while teams can outsource any or all that work to a third party, it must be on an exclusive basis. In short, it means that the design of these parts must be all of its own work and not taken from other teams and the parts that fit into this category listed team components and it's a pretty short list are the survival cell and primary role structure the front impact structure aerodynamic components so that in itself is an entirely different class or subcategory um, and a pretty significant one the plank assembly wheel drum and wheel deflector and the fuel bladder the next category are transferable components or t RCs. And Ed writes, once referred to as non-listed parts, these are components that competitors or third parties hold the IP of, but can supply to other teams. So a team has developed them, they own the IP, but they can sell these parts to other competitors, meaning they can sell the parts to their competitors. And, and Ed writes, Haas is the team that uses the most TRCs, maximizing the parts it takes from technical partner Ferrari. However, Alpha Tauri and Aston Martin have also long taken advantage of this, while Williams will use gearbox and related hydraulic systems supplied by Mercedes in 2022. And he writes, the regulations dictate that in order to supply TRCs, the team or or third-party supplier, so a team can build TRCs, or you could set up shop as a company and start making TRCs that you're going to sell to a Formula One team. The regulations dictate that in order to supply TRCs, the team or third-party supplier must own and or control all rights, information, and data of any nature, including all aspects of the design, manufacturing, know-how, operating procedures, properties, and calibrations. TRCs supplied by one team to another must also be identical to those that it uses. So Ferrari, for instance, if Ferrari was going to uh, provide a clutch to Haas, the clutch that it provides to Haas must be absolutely identical to the one that it's going to use. Now, the, the partner, the company that is purchasing or the team that is purchasing the part can subsequently modify it, but the part must be of the same quality that the supplier is going to use. And the list is super long, but some of the things here, rear impact structure, gearbox carrier, cassette, clutch, clutch, clutch activation system, shaft, gearbox internals, inboard front suspension, front suspension members, front upright assembly, axles, inboard suspension, rear suspension, axles, fuel system components, hydraulic pump, hydraulic manifold sensors and control valves, pipes, secondary heat exchanger, power unit mountings, exhaust system, and electrical looms. Then the next category, and there's just the four, standard supply components. So this one is what has, I think it's important because it's one of the things that significantly drives down the cost of Formula One, but it's also one of those things that maybe waters down the competitive the competitive advantage or the competitive edge that Formula One has historically had other over other series. But as the name suggests, right, Ed Straw, these are parts that are, that are designed and manufactured, supplied 
by a designated supplier by the FIA. So basically, these are parts that are not manufactured by an F1 team, but are supplied by a common supplier. So the FIA will say, these parts are going to be made by this company, and you're all going to buy them. Like and the Halo, include- right? Yeah, so exactly. So for instance, if you look at the SSC list, it includes wheel covers, clutch shaft torque, wheel rims, tire pressure sensors, tires. Obviously, all the teams are using tires supplied by Pirelli, fuel system primers, fuel flow meter, high pressure fuel pump, driver radio, high speed camera, biometric gloves, TV camera, standard ECU, standard ECU FI application, rear lights, et cetera, et cetera. But again, this is designed because one, a lot of these are sensors and components that the FIA needs to monitor the car. Some of these are safety components. Um, but ultimately, this is the FIA saying these parts will be made by this company and you're all going to buy them and you can't modify them. And then finally, and this is a really interesting one, open source components, OSCs. This, according to Ed Straw, is an all new part designation applying to those components whose design and intellectual property is made available to all teams. So basically, here's the blueprints. You can all use the blueprints to build the same part. So rather than simply deferring these to a third-party supplier that all the teams use collectively, here's the blueprints, make them yourself. And he writes, they exist as an alternative to a wider deployment of standard supply components, allowing teams to modify parts to suit their own design. So again, here's the blueprints. You can make them, you can modify them. But if you modify them, you also have to share those blueprints back on a server to all of the other teams. And this includes parts like the front floor structure, pedals, the rear wing adjuster, drive shaft, front axles, rear axle, steering column, brake disc, brake calipers, rear brake control system, brake master cylinder, fuel system, fuel collector, fire extinguisher, water drink system, and much, much more. So hopefully that's helpful. And I've already tweeted out the link to this article by Ed Straw because he does a really great job of breaking it down, but totally worth checking out. Uh, and that's a great summary. Like uh, when you were just talking about all the parts that uh, that Haas have, like I, I was kind of chuckling because I mean, they are really integrated with uh, Ferrari. They have like their own little pod or whatever you want to call it at Marinello at the factory. So exactly, they're really, exactly. really tight with, uh, with, with one another. Anyways, before we go on to the next one, uh, I, I wanted to take a quick break but i also i did find that section just to kind of go back uh, to the um the previous question from from clayton and so the the the, the programs to which this uh, act applies i thought that that this was interesting language so i'll kind of just uh, sk- you know skip over the part that says for the purposes of section blah 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 and all these uh, different things i'll just uh, read out uh, the the what i thought was interesting it says uh, the purpose for the pur- purposes of this paragraph, the commission, and that's the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, may make regulations prescribing programs in respect of which this act applies in a matter that is consistent with freedom of expression. So I think that's a really, really a key takeaway there as well. So I think, um, you know, as long as you're on side and, uh, you know, you're not, uh, you know, going off on a, a really extreme sort of tangent, then I would think that uh, for by and large, you should be okay. Famous last words. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but like I said, we'll wait and see what happens if and when this thing passes into law. Anyways, we're going to take a quick time uh, timeout. We're going to come back on the flip side. We're going to keep jumping into the mailbag, and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. Okay, welcome back, everyone. It is a Sunday afternoon. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here diving into this 
overflowing and bulging and you know stretched at the seams mailbag and the next one comes from at very merry man proverbial jack on twitter and the question here is tracks are always mentioned to be high speed or low speed corners being high or low sorry high or low downforce tracks how does someone figure out which track is or be able to tell ahead of time there you go. Good question. I know you got something there, Mark, and I got, I'll got i weigh in on this one too, but you go first. Yeah, definitely. So this is a really great question and appreciate proverbial Jack waiting. This was a question we've kind of been kicking down the road a little bit because we kind of tie, wanted to tie it in with a with a track that kind of featured the, featured the attributes of one of the two kind of categories that were listed there. But I'm actually going to refer to an article that Joe Holding wrote back on April 7th of 2021 in motorsport.com because he does a pretty good job of of kind of talking about this. And, and if you're a Formula One fan and you listen to podcasts and you hear the watch the races, you'll hear a lot about power tracks. So less about low downforce tracks, but you'll hear more about high downforce tracks. And you'll probably hear a lot about power tracks. And what he writes here is, um, although these aren't official terms, uh, they help describe the different characteristics of each circuit and explain why teams don't simply qualify in the same order every single week, right? That if all of the tracks were equal and all of the cars carried over the same physical performance attributes every single week, then we would see the same qualifying order and possibly the same race outcome. But every track is unique. And as such, every single team modifies the setup of their car for every single specific track. So when we talk about, hey, we got the setup right this week, or we got the setup wrong, or we need to continue to work on our setup, it's because they need to adapt the car to the characteristics of the tracks that they're racing at. And and Joe continues to write here, ideally teams want to design cars that produce as much downforce as possible to boost speed through corners, but the challenge is to do this in such a way that it doesn't result in too much aerodynamic drag. And of course, the, the downside of aerodynamic drag is it significantly impacts your performance in long straights. And he continues, more drag will slow a car down in a straight line and consequently more power is needed to overcome the resistance and achieve the best possible acceleration and top speed. This equation is why some cars perform better at certain types of tracks than others and why it's possible to build a car that's tailor-made for every single Grand Prix. And last year, a perfect example of this is the car that Williams showed up to Monza with and Nick DeVries drove to that points finish was perfectly suited to that track, but certainly not well suited to some of the more high, high downforce tracks that we had on the calendar, including Monaco. And he writes again, what's a high downforce track in F1? And he says, a high downforce track is a circuit where most of a car's performance over the course of a lap can be attributed to the aerodynamic downforce it produces rather than the power of its engine. High downforce tracks will have fewer and shorter straights than low downforce tracks with more of an emphasis on corners. What's a power track? A power track is more or less the opposite of a high downforce tracks. Most of a car's performance is tied to the power, acceleration, and top speed made possible by the engine. Long straights and short, slow corners are typical features of power tracks. And then finally, he writes here, how does driving style change? All drivers have a subtly different approach to driving an F1 car, and the fastest drivers tend to be the ones who can adapt their style every week to get the best performance out of their car in the unique circumstances presented by each track. More downforce creates more grip in corners, which allows drivers to carry more speed and post quicker lap times. However, it can also reduce performance in a straight line by causing drag, and great drivers are able to work out if they need to be later on the brakes heading into a turn or early on the throttle coming out of it to extract the most speed from their car. 
The flip side of this is that more aggressive cornering tends to wear tires out more quickly, so smoother steering wheel inputs might be needed in order to make the rubber last longer. Most cars will stop once or twice over the duration of a lap of a race, and knowing which strategy is faster can decide what style of driver needs to adapt or adopt to achieve the most perfect results and he's got a couple of other call outs here that i'll quickly reference because i know you're <laughs> chomping at the bit to to uh to share your thoughts on this one but he writes high downforce tracks there's no official guide to what constitutes a high downforce track but the team's approach to each circuit shows where they think downforce is a priority and where power is less important hungary imola singapore spain and monaco are all examples of high downforce tracks with relatively short straights and lots of turns putting a greater emphasis on cornering speed so cornering speed means aerodynamic functionality it means more downforce more grip in particular sector three in barcelona which features a series of low speed turns is historically a good gauge for how cars will perform in monaco which normally follows spain on the f1 calendar so you can watch the spanish grand prix you can see how the cars perform in those couple of corners because that's going to translate into the characteristics of the race in monaco Monaco. Tracks like Silverstone and Spa feature high downforce sequences that can see the drivers pulling up to 6G. However, the long straights and high-speed corners of these sectors mean the power still has a big influence on the pecking order. And then finally, and I'll kick it over to you after this, Joe writes, Power tracks. The Italian Grand Prix at Monza is the closest you'll get to a true power track in F1. Drivers are believed to spend 75% of the lap at full throttle around Monza, and the fastest laps ever recorded in the history of the sport are typically set here. LH holds the record for the highest average speed recorded over a single lap, averaging an average of 165 miles per hour or 254 kilometers on the way to pole position at Monza in 2020. Other power tracks with long straights include Mexico, Canada, Baku, and Austria, among others. So a great summary here from Joe Holding at motorsport.com. And I've also posted this on our Twitter feed so people can check it out. Yeah, very cool. I don't really have a lot to, to add to that. But when you just uh, mentioned like those uh, high downforce uh, tracks, you mentioned Spain was one of them. But that's probably going to change now because we've seen over the past Absolutely. two years. Absolutely, great call. Like though that last third of the lap, uh, that, that sector three, they reprofiled, uh, I think it was turn nine or 10 or something like that, back to its regular, original configuration. And we just talked about it recently, I think, was it the week before last, just in the last couple of weeks, how they're going to take that chicane out right before the pit entry at the end of the lap. So, you know, that indicator that the teams have had for many, many years of you know running their cars through that part of the track and how they can take any lessons learned and apply it to Monaco, which, like you say, typically comes afterwards on the calendar. That might not be as uh, relevant uh, anymore, but it's funny. As soon as you said power track, the first thing that flashed into my head was Monza, Monza. And of course, uh, there's a great YouTube video. You should go and check it out. And I think it was Juan Pablo Montoya in the Williams who had the previous lap record, which, like you say, Lewis just uh, crushed or cracked in 2020. But uh, JPM, he set that way back in 2004. And that was like a normally aspirated, would that have been a V8, V10, whatever. The car sounds fantastic. So I highly recommend that you go and uh, take a look for that on uh, on YouTube because it's the in-car camera and it is just uh, absolutely uh, outstanding. But, you know, the, the, the truth is that while you have some extremes like, 
like Monza on one end and the Monaco on the other. Most of the other tracks are kind of a combination. They're going to have features of power circuits and then also like the, you know, your, your Monaco's and your Hungries of the world. So it really becomes like a balancing act to, for, for, for the teams, you know, to, to figure out, like you say, get the setup right. And, and then some cars are just uh, better suited to some tracks uh, more than others. So that's a, a great question. Okay. Next one comes from Noah in Perth, Australia. And the question or the comment is, uh, so I was thinking about the Andretti bid and their proposed partnership with GM. GM clearly wants to enter Formula One in some capacity, but there is not a guarantee that Andretti will get on the grid. Knowing that, does GM start looking at other partnerships to enter F1? Williams, McLaren, another new entry. Uh, GM clearly doesn't want to make their own engines yet, but maybe they're happy to rebadge the Renault unit and work with a different team. Thoughts? Love the show. I listen when I'm swimming and running. Swimming, that's a new one. I haven't heard of anybody listening to the pod while swimming before, but cool. Thank you for that, uh, Noah. So this whole thing, I mean, we've been talking about Andretti now, like, a year and a half it'll be two years uh, this summer because uh, originally they were you know looking sniffing around to 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 buy Sauber but this whole you know connection with GM and the fact that they were going to come in uh, branded as Cadillac that's only really popped up since what the beginning of the year I mean it's very very recent just within the last several weeks to to a couple of months so it, it seems like they are interested to getting into Formula One however I I don't know is it is I, I haven't really read into it enough to say whether or not they're just bound and determined to enter Formula One by any means necessary or exclusively in partnership with Andretti. So I will let you think about that for 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 the moment. But certainly, like they they did seem to at least from what we've understood is that a rebadging of the Renault probably would be an option, right? I mean, it would be kind of strange to have like a, you know, like Andretti Motorsports Cadillac and then, you know, but with a Renault in it. So we've seen like the rebadging and rebranding of what is like a Honda or whatever, uh, or Renault in this case, we've seen them rebadged with a different, different name on it, even though that entity has nothing to do with the design and build and upkeep and maintenance of that power unit. It's just basically a naming uh, exercise. So yeah, I, I'm not really sure where to go with this one. Like I, like, like I say, I just, uh, for me, I think the crux of this com- you know, conversation goes on how bound and determined is GM to get into Formula One and does it have to be an exclusive partnership with with Andretti, or are they just going to go and look at any other team that potentially could want to partner with them? Hammy, over to you. You you just nailed it. You absolutely nailed it with that term, uh, exclusive. And nobody knows for sure, but it's widely understood that their partnership with Andretti is not exclusive, meaning that GM can absolutely and should absolutely pursue other opportunities to find their way into Formula One, that if their objective is to be on the grid in some capacity, and clearly they're not looking to be a works team, and it doesn't seem as though they're prepared financially technically to develop their own power unit but if they want to enter the grid there's other ways of doing it and we've got a story coming up with one of the teams that are on the grid today that already has designs on making a decision around their power unit for 2026 there's nothing to stop gm from uh, entering into a partnership to purchase and rebadge Renault power units to a team other than Andretti. And that team, of course, could be McLaren. That team, of course, could be Williams. That team, of course, could be somebody else. But I don't think that they are bound exclusively, and I don't think they're married to Andretti. And if they are, and they have aspirations of getting on 
on the grid? Why would you why would you hitch yourself to a wagon that has no guarantee of finding a place in F1 where you could partner with an existing team, buy Renault engines and simply rebadge those and provide some technical expertise around the electrical components? So Noah, awesome question, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. So that that one's, you know, Noah, that one's given me a lot to think about. So thank you for sending that one in. Next one threw me uh, for for a loop, and uh, you'll see when we get to the end. <laughs> me too. Anyways, uh, the next one comes from JJ in Phoenix. Question for the mailbag. What is the future of gambling concerning F1? There has been a huge increase in betting across all sports recently, especially following the rise and fall of crypto. Do you foresee Liberty Media or another third-party companies creating new ways to bet on racing beyond F1 fantasy? In my opinion, it is no coincidence that the F uh, that the debut F1 Vegas race and the first ever Super Bowl in Vegas occur with one year of each other. Also, JJ from Houston is no longer, but like the Phoenix, I have risen again. In other words, I have moved moved to Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> great email, yeah, great email. Thank you very for that, JJ, and thank you for the life update. Uh, I was actually kind of wondering. We hadn't heard from JJ in a while, so. Glad to hear that uh, you're still out there. This is, you know, a really interesting one. I mean, I've been, you know, it's no secret that that I'm a big soccer fan. You know, I've been, uh, you know, watching it all my life, and like gambling and gambling sponsorship, especially around like the the European leagues, especially the English Premier League, have been around for a long, long time. And you know, personally, I have a bit of buddy. A, you it, can bet in stadium. That, that's, I think that's one of the most remarkable things for North Americans. You yeah, can lay your bets in the stadium. That's exactly where I was going to go with this, Hammy. And and that's the thing that blew blew me away. Is like I'd seen it on TV, and it's like shirt sponsors and things like that watching it. And ten years ago, we went um, over to England. We were watching a game. We we're watching Manchester United play Sunderland at Old Trafford, and I was just kind of like really shocked at that point because like I, I'd seen it and knew it was there for for a long time but i thought it was you know i had personally i had a bit of an issue with it because you could literally like like you say go and sit in the stadium watch the game and then literally run out to like the little i mean you probably just do it on your phone now of course but then you could also just run out buy a ticket or whatever and throw something down because there was like a little booth out on the concourse and you know and you just see it all over the place it's like on the like the advertising it's on shirts and i don't know it's it's to me I don't know. I, I find it a bit of an ethical gray area, and and, and that's kind of like putting it kindly. I mean, I could make a couple other analogies, but you know, I don't want to go there because it might be kind of triggering for to, to some people. But you know, gambling can be an addictive behavior. So I mean, you know, take that you know analogy where you want to go or that comparison and take it where it goes. But I, I think that JJ is on to something. I mean, you got F one biggest global racing series right coupled with the the super bowl also one of the if not the biggest global sporting events in the calendar year all debuting on the ground in las vegas within 12 months of each other so i don't know i mean you can pull the uh like the uh the tinfoil out and you know come up with some conspiracy theories but i i think that is a very very interesting question that jj has raised how about yourself mark i Yeah, I I think it's a a really great question, and I think we will absolutely continue to see legalized betting and official betting channels for Formula One. It's going to continue to manifest itself, particularly in the U.S., where we've seen waves of legislation in in recent years that have opened legalized gambling and betting on professional sports from state to state to state. And like you, you know, again, I'm not judging, but to me, I think, I think. Gambling is a bit of kind of like a moral gray area, the the addictive qualities and and the fact that 
Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm personally not a fan, but at the same time, I appreciate why it's valuable to the sports and that if people are going to bet on your product, why not get in on that cut? Why not get yourself a cut of the the proceeds of people gambling on your sport? And certainly we've seen it with the NBA and the NFL and some of these other leagues, but I think it's going to continue to manifest itself. I, I think F1 Liberty will officially start partnering with companies. Um, but like you, I, I find it a challenging, a challenging topic because it's certainly not something I partake in. And people will challenge me. They're like, well, you do F1 fantasy. I'm like, yeah, F1 fantasy has no cost to join. There's no cost. There's no risk. But when you are putting money down on a bet, there's an immediate financial risk to, to, to that, uh, to that bet. So yeah, good question. And I think we're going to see more and more of it. And I think Liberty will officially partner with some companies at some point in the very near future. Yeah. And before those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time, remember that back in the day that we did at one point have like a, a betting partner, I'm fully aware of that. And that was a bit of a, you know, at the time, a bit of a moral kind of like quandary because it was, quandary? A, yeah, yeah, you know, because we needed the funding or specifically this is before you and I even partnered up and, you know, I, I couldn't pay for all the things on my own. So, I mean, it, it was something I, I thought about a lot and considering nowadays that, um, yeah, I know we've had some issues <laughs> recently also with the, some <laughs> unintended advertisers <laughs> sneaking their way onto this program which have infuriated the both of us, but that's a, that's a separate issue. Nowadays that, uh, you know, fortunately there, there seem to be better quality, you know, people wanting to partner with us where we can pick and choose where like a lot of people exactly. that, that we exactly. want to partner with. So if one of those opportunities came now, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say you, you know, we wouldn't, but I mean, the chances are probably like 95 percent or greater yeah. that we would pro- you know, we would say no right so i just want totally. to bring that up Great because question, somebody might have brought that up and say hey did you guys have like advertiser gambling in the past so yeah we did uh anyway so <laughs> let's move on to dan hey mark and mark uh, could you uh, please explain on the show what affects tire degradation and why certain teams example red bull have less degradation why certain teams ferrari have more degradation what is it about the design concept that impacts this so much thanks you know, the, the answer to this question is the Red Bull's a good car and the Ferrari sucks. So there you go. <laughs> now the Ferrari, don't at me Ferrari fans, but you know, certainly that, that really is what it comes down to is it is the design and build of the car that, that there are subtleties on it and the way that the aero package works and the way that the car is designed and built that, that some cars just are easier on the tires. Also, the, it comes down to the driving style as the drivers as well. So the... <clears throat> Excuse me, pardon me. There are a number of things that uh, that come into it, but Dan has certainly picked up on a very good point that there seems to be less deg on the Red Bull compared to the Ferrari, and we saw that last week in in Bahrain, which is more of a, a grittier, more abrasive track surface. So it it doesn't come into play all the time, but when you have some of these tracks that do have the more abrasive uh, surface, like we see at the Sahir uh, International Circuit, that that's where these differences between like the Red Bull and the Ferrari they're they're more exaggerated they're more apparent because where the where the surface is kinder to all the teams it doesn't become a big factor but we saw last week in Bahrain how during the middle part of the the the, the, the race that when you know the the cars chasing Carlos Sainz gobbled him up and it was he, he was there like he was almost like a 
I don't want to say a mobile roadblock because that's a little bit unkind, but let's just say that when it came to, you know, trying to fight for position, Carlos wasn't able to do it because there wasn't anything into the tires and his, you know, his competitors, his rivals were in a much better place with their own tires than the state that they were in. So it was a relatively easy exercise. And unfortunately for Carlos, where he started well in the race as the race progressed, he slowly but steadily just dropped down the, the race order. Hammy, what do you want to add to this one? Yeah, that Joe Holding article I referenced a couple of minutes ago also has a section about tire degradation. So I'm going to quote here again from motorsport.com and Joe Holding, what's a high degradation track? Power and downforce aren't the only things that dictate how well cars perform at a track. Teams also have to account for degradation, which is what causes a tire to lose grip when it gets hot. Different circuits use different types of material in the construction of the surface, which means degradation can be more of a threat at some venues than others. High degs tracks force drivers to drive in such a way that their tires don't build up excessive heat and lead to a loss of lap time. Degradation shouldn't be confused with wear, which is the gradual erosion of the tire tread as a result of friction caused by the track surface. Street tracks like those in Baku, Monaco, and Sochi are considered low deg circuits, and the track surface isn't as abrasive as is typically found on a custom-built racetrack. F1 circuits used in Canada, Austria, Mexico, and Abu Dhabi are usually kind of tires too. High degradation can be caused by a mixture of two things the roughness of the asphalt and the force going and the force going the tires as a result of moving at speed silverstone spawn suzuka or suzaka have some of the highest cording speeds on the f1 calendar so these tracks are naturally quite tough on tires bahrain is also thought of as a high deck track and Prelli has selected its most durable compounds for the portuguese spanish and dutch grand prix in 2021 degradation is also linked to downforce on some tracks high downforce can be a good thing as it helps bring the tires up to the preferred operating temperature helping cars to go faster, but at others, it can cause the rubber to last fewer laps. And if drivers have to make an extra pit stop compared to their competitors, then this can sometimes be slower overall. Yeah, perfect, right? I think that it's a nicely summed up, but it, it, it's a great question. And and that's what makes Formula One fun is, uh, you know, from, from a fan's point of view, is watching strategy, watching what's happening on the track, watching how the teams react to it. And sometimes, uh, you know, you that I, I think like last week was a more of an extreme example that we won't see at every race uh, this year, but perfectly illustrated was uh, the, the situation with Ferrari and uh, Carlos Sainz. Okay, time for another quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to Jason, Nick, Michelle, Carlos, and maybe a couple others. And then we're going to dive into a couple of news items and we'll wrap it up. Anyways, we'll be back in just a, a moment. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. Next email, sticking with the mailbag, is uh, from Jason Fletcher. Jason's uh, question is, um, where did it go? Here we go. With all uh, the Mercedes going on, uh, another direction talk, did they bring a car with side pods to the first day of testing last year? So it's not back to, to square one matter. It's disheartening to hear any of the teams talk about starting over. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, after last year and the the issues and the troubles that they had to get that w13 dialed in i must admit i was very very surprised that they came to testing this year with another side podless car that that despite all the issues that they had that they've still you know figure at this point that there's something in this concept that is worth trying to give like one more stab at but when you just look at just like where they were just not only compared to red bull and 
Ferrari and well, Ferrari is a bit of a, a different issue because they kind of struggled and Charles, of course, uh, retired last week. But, you know, and, and Aston Martin, it's not like, are, are they top three? It's just like they're, they're now like a top five team. So I'm very, very concerned with what's going on with the Mercedes because whenever we've seen them have issues, apparently, you know, especially since 2014, and of course, it was a different era with uh, without the cost cap and things like that. So they could literally throw resources and people and money at at the problem and and basically engineer their way out of a hole. They can't do that now, but still, they had like an entire year to come up with a, a replacement to the W13, and you know. <laughs> We're still kind of seeing like an evolution on last year's car, which I find really, really quite uh, surprising. Mark, over to you. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add other than the fact that uh, I would stress that the side pods aren't a singular interchangeable component that can be swapped out, that they're part of a much, much bigger package. And if you swap out your side pods, you're talking about a new floor, you're talking about a new rear wing, you're talking about new diffusers, you're talking about uh, new end plates on your front wing, if not an entirely new front wing. So it would upset the entire balance of the car. And I think that's where I think that's where Mercedes's complexity or a challenge is at this point that hey if this specific if this specific uh, i would say objective or vision for an aerodynamic package isn't working then it's not a single component that you would swap out you're effectively starting from ground zero and i think that's where that talk of a b car or an entirely separate package was coming from recently but it's not as insignificant swap that would have to be made but and it's funny too because at the same time mercedes keeps alluding and we've got this store um letter we might get to in a couple of minutes, but Mercedes keeps alluding to the fact that there are problems with the car, but they also allude to the fact that the side pods themselves may not be that problem. So it's it's a little bit confusing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that that's a great question. We'll pick it up in a couple of minutes when we get to the news, but... Uh... Yeah, it is uh, certainly a fascinating situation to watch and also must be quite frustrating for all the Mercedes fans out there to see their team uncharacteristically struggle. It certainly is uh, unprecedented in, in modern Formula One. Okay, next question comes from Nick in Pittsburgh, who asks, what happens first, Leclerc meltdown at Ferrari or every crypto sponsor in F1 imploding simultaneously? So is is he asking which one is going to happen or which one do we want to see happen? Yeah. So let's read this again. Which happens first, Leclerc meltdown of Ferrari or every crypto sponsor in F1 imploding simultaneously? So the answer is yes. They're all going to happen simultaneously and concurrently. But yeah, you know, great question. I mean, Leclerc, I mean, <laughs> you you couldn't, I mean, Ferrari fan or not, well, I mean, unless you're completely, you know, you have a hate on for for Ferrari and Charles Leclerc, then you're probably dancing in your your living room last uh, Sunday afternoon. But uh, I, I think for obviously for Ferrari fans and even neutrals, I mean, you couldn't help but feel bad for Charles Leclerc that yet again he's subject to another technical DNF. And despite you know his own best efforts, and you, you just got to think at at some point that there is going to be that 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 meltdown moment, which to me seems like it would be not in his persona. I mean, Charles seems like he's obviously very professional, very driven, very focused, and he seems very chill and relaxed at the same time, especially when he's in, in, in the media. He seems very jovial and 
you know, very pleasant guy. But at some point, you know, if this continues and things don't start to get better. I mean, who who wouldn't put lose their cool, right? I, I think that's you know. I was just going to say there are definitely some worrying signs from Marinello, and we talked last Thursday about the fact that David Sanchez had a vehicle concept at Ferrari, basically their chief aerodynamicist uh, had resigned in anticipation of taking a job with a British-based Formula One team. It it was revealed over the last couple of days that this was less about him receiving an offer and more about the fact that he was pursuing possible job opportunities with other teams during the offseason. So it's, it's a little bit worrying. And I think the fact that, like you said, there was another technical DNF when he was clearly, clearly in a pole, not pole, uh, clearly in a podium position at that stage in the race is, is greatly frustrating. But I think the challenge is that if you're Charles Leclerc, what do you do? You can express your frustration internally. You can express your frustration externally. But where are you going to go? You can't really go anywhere. It, it's it's a frustrating situation, and I can only imagine what it's like to be him to qualify well and race well and have another podium snatched away from you. It must be, but it must also be equally frustrating for everybody in the garage and everyone back at the factory to see something like that happen as well. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I'll, I'll kind of pick this up in a second when we get to the next uh, email. Uh, I just want to um, address the second part of uh, Nick's uh, question. So, regarding every crypto sponsor and F one imploding simultaneously, I mean, it, it seems like that day is coming. Was it over the last year, twelve to eighteen months, whatever it is? Sooner the better. It seems like every other week there was like another crypto sponsor going on the side of a Formula One car. And so just on, on that note, Mark and I would like to announce the the debut of Scooter F1 Pod Coin. So, you know, if you want yep. to get in on that, add that to your our We wallet, also do NFTs. Wallet. Yeah, we also do <laughs> NFTs, whatever those are. We're, we're all in on stuff we don't know. But it's, it's I, I would say it's funny, but it certainly is you know interesting and ironic that this whole crypto thing kind of reminds my middle-aged eyes of the dot-com boom from 20 years ago, right? It, it, it seems very, very eerily similar. So. So I, I wouldn't be surprised in a couple of years if we we don't, or, or maybe even sooner, right? Considering the way that things are going, that there might might not be a single crypto sponsor left in in Formula One. You know, if they legitimately had any money to inject into Formula One in the first place, that's a, another question. Anyways, thanks for that, Nick. Uh, next one, Michelle. If Ferrari really has decided to put everything behind Charles, understandably, where does that leave Carlos? He totally, or he he doesn't seem totally willing to accept second banana roll though he's consistently slower. Do you think he looks elsewhere? Uh, you know, great question, Michelle. I think the question is, do either Charles Leclerc or Carlos Sainz look elsewhere? Because Red Bull, Max is going to stay there. He's not going to go anywhere. This is clearly the team that's riding the peak of the wave. The only thing that might change at Red Bull is that number two seat, which is going to be interesting to watch. You know, does does, does Sergio Perez keep in there? Does does Danny Ricardo actually have like a legit shot to reclaim that? And if so, would he do anything with it? So clearly, if anyone would, you know, if there's anything going to happen at Red Bull, it's going to be in that number two role. And, you know, would there be any question? I mean, obviously Charles wouldn't want that 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 uh, that role. I mean, clearly anybody going there knows that they're going to be number two to Max. And then the same thing with Mercedes, right? I mean, you got Lewis there. Lewis, you know, saying that he's not done with Formula One. He's going to be around for at least a couple of years yet. George obviously seems to be their succession plan. And so those are the only top two teams that are locked up. I mean, 
I guess Aston Martin could be a possibility, but you know, they, they got to prove first they're a legit team, but it's just like, if you're Carlos or Charles, like where, where do you go? I mean, I, I think that you have to ride this thing out and, you know, specifically to Carlos, I, I think at some point, you know, if they haven't done at least internally, make that statement that Charles Leclerc is our guy, he's our number one. And, you know, maybe he doesn't dominate that team that say, like Michael Schumacher did, because that was kind of like an opposite end of the spectrum with all those years that he was partnered with Rubens Barrichello, or maybe even look at like Lewis and and, and Bottas at Mercedes in the last several years where Lewis was winning the bulk of the races, but you know, on his day, Valtteri was, you know, good for a win or two here or there. Maybe that's eventually what the, the Ferrari situation evolves into, but I, I just I can't see either of those two drivers leaving because I don't think that there's an upward move available to either of them and 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 who knows what uh, what what Mercedes might want to do you know, the day that Lewis finally decides to walk away obviously they won't have any lack of choice of drivers interested in that seat but you know maybe then. But I mean, George has kind of made some pretty good arguments that he might be the guy to to succeed Lewis one of these days. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Abby. There's lots of what ifs. I don't know if there's any more what ifs you want to throw into this uh, discussion or not. No? Head shake? All right, we'll move on to the next one from Carlos von Carlos. I've heard a lot about uh, Akon and Gasly disliking each other in the past. What is the source of their beef? We got beef in F1, and apparently it's a little bit less, but you, you're you all keen to go. You're no head shakes on this one. You're right in. So Abby, It's not it. as juicy as I think we all want it to be. According to an article uh, from racefans.net in 2018, it is summed up as this. According to Pierre Gasly, and I quote, I started to beat him. And he didn't like it, so we're not friends anymore. He continues, we spent a lot of time together, but it got to a point where he got a bit too upset and it wasn't so nice anymore. So we kind of stopped socializing. Then after, we always had quite a bit of a rivalry. I think we respect each other as drivers. I've known Esteban for a long time and just started to get to know Pierre. Um, oh, sorry, this is a quote here from Staffnauer. Um, I've, I've known Esteban for a long time and just started to get to know Pierre, but I see no evidence of any friction in the relationship, Staffnauer told the media uh, before the release of the cars A523. So I, I think really it's just, one, they were extremely close in karting. And I, I think typically if you compete in karting and you compete at the most premier levels, typically you're going to get to know other premier carters in your country really well. And I think they competed together for many years. They became very, very close friends. And I think the nature of competition may have torn them apart. And if you hear what Gasly says, it's that Akon got frustrated with the fact that Gasly outcompeted him. And obviously their relationship frayed. By all accounts, they continued to talk about non-motorsport related issues for some time, but that their friendship, their relationship remained very, very cold during their time at F1. And I think certainly there was a concern that if you bring these two drivers together, is that going to be a combustible situation for the team 
moving forward. And Otmar, by all accounts, has reassured everybody within and outside of the team that their relationship has matured to such a point that there shouldn't be any combustible moments. But at the same time, it was reported during the offseason that they were even going to try to keep the 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 T or the family members of the two drivers apart and that they wouldn't necessarily directly socialize in the garage and at race day events and things like that. But I I I would assume that the relationship's going to mature. The drivers aren't 18, 17, 19 anymore. They both got a storied history in F1. They both won a Formula One Grand Prix. I suspect they're going to be fine. But at the same time, I don't mind seeing a little bit of friction between my drivers because I want to have two drivers who are both equally hungry to win Formula One Grand Prix. And as much as that they're your teammate, I think at some point they need to be seen as your, your competitor as well. And I think there's a fine line, right? Like I think what we saw with with Max, or sorry, what we saw with Lewis and Nico in 2016 was probably on the wrong side of that line, but you want them as close to that line as possible. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's, it's almost a little bit kind of like a you know, disappointing that, you know, it's such, but I mean, it's a, it's a logical kind of like origin for the disagreement and the dislike that they had previously. It wasn't juicy, like something like Gasly ran over Akon's cats or Gasly's girlfriend dumped him and started dating Esteban or something like that. I mean, it's just a couple of drivers that are just, you know, uber competitive and just comes down to the rivalry that they, they had on the track, which if there's any source for, for like a bit of a rivalry or maybe like a bit of like you know just like between a couple of people that's that's probably you know not that i like to see people not getting along with one another but probably that's maybe one of the better places for the origins of a disagreement so anyway sounds like it's getting a little bit better so finally we get a, a question here from the formula one matchmaker of all time i guess extraordinary our, extraordinary, our good friend victor sum who introduced us to each other before we actually realized we were going to do a podcast together. It, it took us a long time to actually connect those dots. But anyways, thank you to, for the message from Victor. So his question is, what do you think of Button doing three races in NASCAR this year with the possibility of more? And Victor, he's a big uh, NASCAR fan, and he's always been asking us, yeah, why don't you guys talk more about NASCAR? And we're just like, because we don't really know enough about NASCAR. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, just talk, you know, I love Jensen. I, I think he, he was awesome when he was in Formula One. Clearly, he was reached the end of what he could do serious, like, like on the serious competitive side on it. I think it's like a, a bit of a a disappointing sort of sad footnote to his Formula One career when he filled in for Fernando at Monaco in what was that 2017 or 18 when Fernando was off racing at Indy the same weekend because Monaco and, and, and Indy tend to be on the same weekend or historically have done many, many times in the past. Anyways, I love Jensen. Would love to see him back in motorsports, even if it's just kind of like on on a limited kind of engagement like he's doing with, uh, you know, in NASCAR. And I just like number one, I'm like, you know, does does Jensen still have it? And if so, does he have it to be able to do something completely different like stock car racing? So I, th- I think it's cool. I think it's definitely cool. It's interesting, right? Because. You look at NASCAR and and people will joke like, well, there's 500 races in each in each or 500 drivers in each race, and it's not really the case. Like, I think there's 36 charters, and I think 40 cars start each 
each cup series race, but that's that's a lot of that's a lot of potential grid slots. And in Formula One, we could never see something like a wild card. We could never see something like a guest driver. But I suppose really they have the flexibility in the NASCAR competition to be able to do things like this. So obviously we talked on Thursday about the fact that there's an upcoming race that will feature both, and maybe it's already happened. I'm not following NASCAR super closely, but there was an upcoming race that was going to feature two Formula One world champions in both Kimi Raikkonen and in Jensen. Button. I think the question that I I would actually have for a NASCAR fan is like, what value does this provide to to NASCAR? Because I don't know how competitive these guys are. Like, it's really cool to see a guest out there, a former champion competing in NASCAR. But what's the point if they're never going to be competitive? And maybe they are super competitive and and there's some value. But I would love to hear from a NASCAR fan, like a diehard NASCAR fan, and get their honest opinion about whether there is any value in, like, obviously, from a marketing perspective, it draws eyeballs, you sell tickets and things like that. But in terms of the actual competitive nature of a, a NASCAR race, what what do they add? And like when I see Jack Good, Villeneuve yeah. as a seventy five year old competing in NASCAR <laughs> races, like it, it almost it almost devalues the the events that he's competing in. But I would love to hear from a NASCAR fan because I just I don't know enough about the championship to understand why there is a desire to bring in these forty plus year old former F one drivers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear that uh, you know that point of view as well because if like the it was flipped around, if it was like a forty plus year old former NASCAR driver getting a ride in Formula One, I'm sure like all the diehards is like, what the heck is this guy doing here? So I'm sure there's like a lot of F, sorry, a lot of NASCAR fans thinking the exact same thing. So, you know, if you're also like, if you're a Formula One fan, you're also a NASCAR fan, you know, we'd love to hear from you on this uh, point of view. So send us a tweet at Scooter F1 Pod or send us an email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear that take. And, uh, you know, if if you send us a message, we'll uh, work it into the next show if we get anything. Okay. Thank you one and all for all those uh, fantastic emails and questions and tweets. We're going to take one quick break, come back on the flip side, go over a couple of uh, pieces of news that dropped in the last couple of days since uh, Hammy's solo show here the other day. And we'll do that in just a moment. Uh, We will be back in just a brief pause. So no, go away. All right, everyone, welcome back. Like I said, a couple of uh, news items to go over. And the first one, if you head on over to MercedesAMGF1.com, is a one-page open letter to their fans, which, as I read this thing, blows my mind. You know, like, I, I think for me, like, this is kind of like a, like a kind of a sandwich with, like, some interesting things on, you know, it was formed, like, either pieces of bread and, like, a bunch of juicy stuff in the middle. But the opening paragraph really, and, and the closer really kind of sum it up for me. So the first one, it says, To our fans, Bahrain hurt. It hurt each one of us who head into every season determined to fight for world championships. It hurt the team as a whole after pouring so much hard work into a car that hasn't met our expectations. And we know it hurt you too. Your passion and support are so important in driving us forward. And we know that we feel the same pain. And then it goes on to say, the situation we face right now isn't one that any of us wanted, but it's the one that we have. That's the reality of it. And the simple questions are, what can we do about it and what will we do about it? So it goes on for quite uh, you know quite a bit to more on. There's several points that they list. And then the last couple of uh, sentences here, you know, there's a bit of a call to action and this very lukewarm rallying cry, which, you know, to me seems very un-Mercedes-like. 
anyways, uh, you know, we'll, you know, you should go to MercedesAMGF1.com, check out the, the the letter, read it all in full. But at the end, it says we're already hard at work changing the course of this 2023 season. The re- recovery began immediately after race, and everybody has a part to play. Are you ready to join us for the fight back? If not, then there are no hard feelings. If yes, then let's do this. <laughs> wow. That, dude, that letter is so eye roll, man. I know. That is so I eye know. roll. Like what do do you seriously owe your fans an open letter of apology after a soft weekend at Bahrain? And then you set such a questionable, you set such a questionable um what is the word here? Uh oh my god. You you create this expectation or understanding that you're going to dress your fans after every poor weekend and then oh we we understand that some of you no longer want to be mercedes fans that are going to go and join the fanship of another team and we totally understand whole thing is very cringy man very cringy yeah it was just strange i just uh you know like uh, are you ready to do this kind of thing and it's like if not then there's no hard feelings i'm just like no no what is that come on (laughs) i thought that pr team is too big and has too much free time yeah yeah exactly right Anyhow, go go and check it out. Anyways, uh, next one here. Apparently, uh, Mercedes HQ is considering giving their strongest engines. You know, we we've talked quite a bit uh, in recent weeks, especially Mark, uh, about uh, customer teams and things like that. And they are apparently are uh, thinking about supplying their strongest uh, engines to Aston Martin, which is uh, really kind of interesting, considering they supply several teams on the grid, including McLaren, including uh, Williams. But Aston Martin apparently has kind of risen to the you know the the top of the pecking order. No, that's not to suggest that they have any kind of like QC problems or anything that that, that they're kind of like manufacturing. They kind of have like A units and B. Well, I guess they do, but uh, apparently that they're stronger engines. They're really thinking about giving to um, to 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 Aston Martin, which really kind of says a lot, but not really because. There are a lot of formal and informal you know, agreements between these two teams that kind of binds them a little closer than, say, Mercedes are with McLaren or they are with Williams. So when I read this, and this is uh, one that came from uh, an article via gpfans.com by a, a writer called Jan, sorry, Jane Grievink, and this was just from a couple of days ago. So the original article is in uh, Dutch, but um, I find this one fascinating that they would actually that this one would actually kind of percolate out there into the 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 public consciousness right i completely completely agree that if this is actually being considered it's it's a pretty significant shock and and i think what's really key to understand here is that they're saying they would consider dedicating the best engines to aston martin and the way that they determine this is Every single engine that comes off the production line gets dyno tested. So they basically, on a dyno bench in the in the factory where the engines are being built, they bolt them down, they wire them up, and they test them. And certain engines are going to produce more power than other engines. And typically, if you manufacture engines, those are the ones you keep. The ones that you don't keep are the ones that generate less power. And again, we're talking fractions of a percentage typically, uh, but the engines that aren't as peak or don't produce as much peak output as the others are the ones that you give to your customer teams. And what this Dutch article, and I'm so glad you were able to read it because I could only kind of glance at a 
fairly questionable translation. But what they're basically arguing here is that the best engines from those on the test bench or the dyno bench are going to go to Aston Martin and Mercedes and Williams and McLaren will in some descending order get the rest of them. But super fascinating that apparently... Mercedes HQ is ready to roll over and give Aston Martin every possible edge possible to be competitive this year. Yeah, it's also interesting, too, where you look uh, in this article from uh, from Yane is uh, that this was originally uh, reported in a Spanish publication called The Objective. So, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, there's a bit of a tie in there, obviously, with Fernando Alonso being a, a Spanish driver. But, you know, according to this original article, like, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that apparently Mercedes says that uh, they, they see potential in Aston Martin, which, you know, would be validation for for Lawrence Stroll, for, for, for the chairman. Right. You know, that uh, discussion that we had with Tim a couple of weeks ago in the season preview that that maybe that this this project that they've been working on and, you know, it's it's had its ups and downs. It's been a little bit rocky that uh, perhaps it's starting to, you know, starting to gain a little bit of traction. So, you know, daily. Yeah. I know we are out of time and we've got a couple of other stories left, but why don't I take those? I'll put them into the Thursday show because I think they deserve some expanded coverage, some expanded conversation. Sure. But maybe this is a great place to wrap it up for this kind of quote unquote bonus episode that we're dropping this week. Certainly, because we could probably go on uh, for for, for quite a bit yet. And I know both of you and I have uh, other commitments this afternoon. So yeah, why don't we uh, just uh, table the rest of the stuff? We'll throw it into the weekly show here on Thursday, because uh, certainly we wanted to spend all that time addressing all the the emails and tweets that we got uh, in recent times. So we're glad that uh, we we did that. So I'm I'm good with it, Hammy. So we will uh, cut it off there. Thank you all for your, your messages. Thank you all for the tweets. Thank you all for listening. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at ScooterF1Pod. Email us at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it for now. Enjoy the start to your week. Mark and I will be back on Thursday night. And we'll do it all all again. Until then, have a good week. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song. And my song's gon' break through like a running back.